Are we live? Okay. All right, we're continuing on in our study of uh, the epistle of 1 John. Have you enjoyed it so far? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay. If you, uh, have you learned anything? <laughs> Some looks like, I don't know. Frank's kind of Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, go to uh, John, First uh, John chapter 3, and uh, we're going to... We, we uh, looked at uh, the last two verses of the previous chapter and the first three verses last week. So um, let's start at verse number four. And really, verse number four, uh, all the way through the end of the chapter there, is, is, is kind of one section, but I think we could divide it up. Now, our text here is going to make further application, because John, John, I guess... Some people use the word redundancy. I don't know if I like that when you apply it to Scripture because redundancy is, it, it, it sounds useless, you know. But that's what John does. John repeats himself. And good teachers repeat themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's what John's doing. He's, uh, he's making further application of the truth that he stressed in all of the preceding verses. And I think that the entire epistle of 1 John is built around an application of those two greatest commandments. And so, therefore, the fellowship with the Son of God is, uh, is congruous with righteousness, which is the subject of verses 4 through 10. And uh, then that proves our love uh, for God and our love for the brethren in verses 11 through 18. <coughs> And then the chapter concludes with a summation or recapitulation of all of that truth, which is essentially our life in the Spirit. And uh, so that would be verses 19 to 24. Today, we're just going to examine verses 4 through 10. And so why don't we go ahead and, and read those verses, okay? Um, would you begin us, uh, uh, Brother Sam, at verse number 4 yeah. of uh, 1 John 3? Yeah. Whosoever commits sin transgression, also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither know, knoweth him. Little children, let no man deceive you, he that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might be, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And then verse number 10, brothers. In this the children of God are manifested, and the children of the devil, whosoever does not righteousness is not of God, neither he that love not his brother. So we're going to consider this. I think this whole chapter we could kind of uh, sum up as a fellowship's congruity. In other words, what's congruous with fellowship? It's our love for God, our love for the brethren, and our life in the Spirit. And uh, so we're going to see those things over the next uh, a few weeks. Um, 
verses uh, 4 through 6, I think, show us our, our deliverance. Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, because sin is transgression of the law. And we know that he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, was manifested uh, to take away our, our sin, because in him, in him is no, no sin at all. Um, years ago, probably more than 35 years ago, I heard a pretty famous pastor in America preach a sermon that he entitled, Repentance, the Enemy of Soul Winning. And that was, that was his title. And his contention was that Baptists needed to stop trying to get people to feel sorry for their sin and just deal with their faith. And uh, so uh, salvation, uh, he contended, is simply turning from unbelief to belief. And uh, I, I think, though, that his concern was probably uh, a polemic. He was trying to counter the growing trend at that time. I think there was more concern about it then than there is now, but uh, at that time in the 80s, late 80s, uh, growing trend towards something called Lordship Salvation. Have you ever heard of Lordship Salvation? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Originally from John MacArthur? Well, I don't know that mm -hmm. MacArthur really could be credited with originating it, but he was certainly a pretty vocal proponent of it. And uh, whether he still is or not, I don't really know because I don't listen to John MacArthur, but I know that, that he was. Um, and so Lordship Salvation, if you're not too familiar with it, it's popular among those who are in Reformed circles and, uh, you know, Calvinists. And simply stated, it's the belief that unless Jesus Christ is the Lord of every area of our life, if we have some area of our life that's under, uh, unsurrendered to the Lord, then He's not our Lord at all. Which, if you think about it, that's, um, that's a pretty uh, a bold statement. Um, I, I, I do think uh, that there are commendable things about both of these movements. In other words, this idea that salvation is nothing other than turning from, from unbelief to faith. And then on the other hand, this idea of lordship salvation that we need to have every part of our life surrendered to God. I think that there are commendable things about both of these movements. But I would say that both of them are unbalanced. And and we should never be unbalanced about anything. If we're unbalanced, then uh, it's, it's never a healthy thing. Both of them are extremist positions. And the fact is that God does hate sin. And our text certainly shows that, doesn't it? Uh, he hates sin when it is committed by an unbeliever. He hates sin when it is committed by a believer. And uh, I, I would be suspicious of the faith of anyone who turned to Christ without being convinced that they were a sinner who needed to be saved. But, but I do know Baptists that practice soul winning, uh, they never mention 
the fact that you're a sinner. They never mention that you're condemned. This is what they say. You, you don't have to go to hell, you can go to heaven. Say this prayer. And they, they repeat, they, they, they say, a, Lord, forgive me of my sin, take me to heaven when I die. And, and they make that little bit of prayer, and then the person pats them on the back and says, Hallelujah, you're a Christian. Even though that person, they don't, the only thing they were doing is repeating somebody what somebody said. It didn't mean anything more to them than people who get up vainly every Sunday and say, you know, repeat the, the, the Lord's Prayer. Or the Roman Catholic that, you know, says a whole bunch of Hail Marys. So, uh, there, there was no faith involved in what they said. They were, they were simply repeating words. So, I would be suspicious of the faith of anyone that turned to Christ without being convinced <coughs> that they were a sinner who needed a Savior. And so, in Christ's parable about salvation in Luke 18, let's, let's look there, Luke 18. Verses 10 through 14. Well, let's um, let's put verse number nine through 14. Uh, the brother Tom, if you start us, brother Sam, and and so. And now nine, yeah. and he spake this parable unto certain rich trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one of Pharisees, Pharisee, and the other of publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Um, I fast twice in the week. I give tithe of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, you know, I think that this is a particularly interesting parable because it, it's touching on this subject of, of salvation. And frankly speaking, I know a lot of Baptists who, you know, they don't resemble the, uh, the, uh, the publican. They resemble the Pharisee because they do exactly what Jesus said. They trust in themselves that they're righteous and they despise others who don't meet their standard of righteousness. They don't, you know, do you know the different, you know what a Pharisee is, right? The Pharisees were the uh, religious elite in Israel. They, they were the fundamentalists of Israel. And so they were the ones that, they didn't, they didn't go to the temple much to worship. They worshiped in the synagogues. They were, they were the ones who, who could quote scripture. 
The Sadducees, not so much. Uh, the Pharisees, in fact, to be a Pharisee, uh, you had to be able to quote the entire five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy from memory. Can you imagine all of those chronologies? But they could. They could. And so, uh, the, 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 the one guy, he was... He had all the right standards, he wore the right clothes, he, he ate the right food, he hung with the right people, and he was pretty proud of himself because he looked just right. And then he looked at the guy who didn't meet his standards and he despised him. And uh, so uh, he, he told the Lord all the things that he did. Lord, I do this and I do this and I do this. Thank you that I'm not like him. So, uh, that's uh, certainly uh, a revealing a parable, and I, I think uh, one that probably doesn't get uh, uh, considered very much, but it's the publican who, who humbly acknowledged his own sinfulness, and the Bible says that he went home justified, and that's what we need. We need justification. It, we're not going to be justified by what we do. We're only justified... If, if the Lord Jesus Christ has his righteousness is imputed to us. So the, the Pharisee, uh, he used his prayer to tell the Lord how good he was and how bad the other guy was. When Paul or Christ, uh, you know, when did Paul or Christ ever advocate not mentioning the law in our soul winning? In other words, if you want to lead somebody to Christ, don't talk about the Old Testament. Don't talk about the law. Don't talk about how it condemns everybody. Instead, just talk about Jesus died for you. Died for you. You know, I, I'm not saying that uh, everybody that you know is led to the Lord by the guy who preached that sermon, "Repentance, the enemy is soul winner," is not a Christian. I'm not. I'm not at all saying that. I'm just saying, until men know that they're a condemned sinner, they're not going to perceive their own need for a Savior. So, I'm suspicious of those guys on the right. Then, on the other hand, I'm also suspicious of the person who thinks they're so spiritual that they have yielded every area of their life to Christ, or that they can, because they have reckoned themselves to be entirely yielded to Christ and He's their Lord in every area of their life, then they can cast judgment on the salvation of someone who's not achieved their level of commitment to Christ. And so, for example, uh, do the adherents of, I would, I, I'd be interested in, you know, <laughs> ask MacArthur this, do they believe that John Mark was not saved in Acts chapter 13 when he departed from Paul and Barnabas mm -hmm. because he was part of the first missionary team that went out and they went through the island of Cyprus and then they went into uh, they went into Antioch of Pisidia and he left and 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 he left specifically when the persecution started to get hot he left when there became risk to his own skin and he left, and, and, and his departure would later 
uh, cause a rift between Barnabas and, and Paul. So evidently he was not entirely surrendered to the Lord. Otherwise, he wouldn't have quit the ministry at that point in his life. So was he not saved? Because that's what Lordship Salvation seems to teach. So, but I think it's pretty evident that John Mark probably was saved at that point. And he certainly was useful in the ministry and useful even to the Apostle Paul later on in his life. Maybe John MacArthur says, no, he wasn't saved at that point. He got saved some time after that. But the Bible doesn't, doesn't, uh, yeah, it doesn't give him any uh, um, conclusive <coughs> uh, judgment on that. So, uh, What do you say to people? Because I, I know now, but when I was very first said, anybody uh, says anything about worship, salvation, it was more explained to me that uh, it was an after-salvation thing. It was... Um, basically now you're turning over your life to Christ and um, what, what do you say to somebody who says they redefine it as you're not a disciple if and then they use the same language are they misconstruing misunderstanding or uh, I don't know because uh, I guess everybody it kind of puts definitions on disciple versus even um, you know, believer, mm -hmm. you know, differently. So, I don't know. I do think that there is a difference between a believer and a disciple. Because, you know, but on the other hand, the Bible does say that certain guys were secret disciples, weren't they? So, they, they, they weren't willing to make their faith public, and yet the Bible still calls them a disciple, albeit a secret disciple. Um, so, uh, that's a little bit, you know, that's a whole different, uh, um, a rabbit hole to chase there. <laughs> I guess I'm just going upon, you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that, that I understand Lordship Salvation as John MacArthur teaches it, because I've never heard John MacArthur teach it. Um, you know, I've read some books not written by John MacArthur. Uh, in fact, they were written by people who were uh, quoting John MacArthur, but I don't know if they were quoting him contextually or taking what he said out of context or something like that. Uh, so I want to be fair. I don't want to, you know, you know, build up a straw man just so I can kick him down. Um, but, but. I, that's why I asked the question, do the adherents of Lordship Salvation, do they think that John Mark was not saved? Because I think he probably was saved. Uh, what about Peter? When, when you remember uh, uh, Peter was in Antioch, and uh, he was fellowshipping with the Gentile believers, and then some Jews from Jerusalem came, sent from James, and immediately when they walked into the room, Barnabas withdrew from fellowshipping with the Gentiles, and even Barnabas was carried away with their dissimulation. That's what Paul called it. It means hypocrisy. It was bigotry. And, uh, and so he had to be rebuked, and Paul rebuked him before all. So uh, I, I don't think anybody would argue, even the Lordship Salvation people, that, that Peter wasn't saved. Yeah, so... Uh, in my opinion, 
opinion, even after salvation, we might uh, make mistakes sure. that are against God's will. But uh, John MacArthur uh, told, uh, told the audience that we must be, we should be perfect after salvation. That's the evidence that we are saved. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, tough. I don't know why too many people would be comfortable hearing that because I don't know too many people that can say that they have ever achieved anything close to perfection, you know, that way. And if you define perfection as sinlessness, well, that's really tough. On the other hand, when we come to this passage, we, we see that it says, Whoso committed sin transgresses also the law. So they're lawless. They're, they're a lawbreaker. Because sin is a transgression of the law. And Jesus was manifested to take away sin. Take away our sin. And so we're in him. In him is no sin. Uh, you know, there's... Uh, these are difficult passages, I guess, uh, in part because uh, maybe there's nuances and meanings in the Greek that just can't be uh, stated in, uh, in English or in other languages without, you know, adding things to the text. Um, but our text tells us whoever commits sin violates the law of God, and sin is a transgression of the law. God gave the law so that we wouldn't be ignorant about sin. Yes. And he also, besides that, even if we don't have the law, because there are people in the world that don't have a Bible, right? Yes. Are they, does that mean because they don't have a Bible, so they've never read about the Lord Jesus Christ, that they're, God can't send them hell because they never got the truth? My wife is shaking her head. <laughs> no, others are looking at me. Uh, uh, God has given every one of us an intuitive moral conscience. Right? Yes. I, yeah. I and, and where does the Bible talk about that? Romans. Romans. In that section of the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> turn to Romans. Right? <laughs> turn to Romans chapter two. This is these, these are verses that uh, are really good to know. Romans two verses fourteen and fifteen. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, in other words, they don't have a Bible, do by nature the things contained in the law. That is, they don't murder, they don't steal, they don't commit adultery, you know, they're faithful to their wife. When they don't do the things that are in, in the law, uh, uh, then uh, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their own hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean, while accusing or else excusing one another. Basically what that verse is saying is that we have a moral conscience. God, God put an imprint in us that does not exist in any other creature of God's creation. There's no dog that has this. There's no dolphin that has this. You know, I don't know what other animals do they say are so smart. Octopus? Um, 
<laughs> and one octopus. He picked the uh, he picked the Super Bowl winner six <laughs> yeah. years in a row or something like that. I don't know. I don't know how in the world an octopus picks picks the Super Bowl winner. <laughs> prophecy, another prophecy. <laughs> the octopus prophet. So, anyways, crazy stuff. But uh, um, God God gave us a moral conscience so that it doesn't matter what part of the world you're from if you were born in the jungles of Borneo, you know, when you're going to steal something, you do this. <laughs> right? <laughs> Why? <laughs> because you know it's wrong. You don't want to be seen doing it. So, uh, that's, that's why. And, and uh, look uh, in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through 20. Romans 1, 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God was manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So you look at the world, you know, some people say, oh, I, I, see, I see chance, I see, you know, uh, adaptation and mutation and whatever, you know, but uh, somebody who's honest, they see a world that was, that was made and uh, a creator. So... Uh, the good news is that Jesus uh, Christ was manifested to take away our sin. And uh, in Him is no sin. Praise the Lord for that. Uh, and that's how we are saved. Because our sin was put on Christ when He was on the cross. Uh, and, and His righteousness was then imputed to us. Christ didn't become a sinner when He took away our sin. He simply paid the price for our redemption. And so God gave him the punishment that we deserved. And uh, positionally, nothing can ever change that. Once we're saved, we'll always be saved. Our, our sin, past, present, and future, was all atoned for on Christ. But practically, that it's another matter. It's, it's God's will that we abide in Christ. And no one is abiding in Christ if they are outside the fellowship of the body of Christ. I think this is very simple. Uh, you know, people come up with all kinds of things. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Does it mean we'll never sin? No, the Bible doesn't teach that we'll never sin. If we sin, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how, and if we're in the body of Christ, then that sin is going to be dealt with. You know, we have a we have a way that we that forces us to examine ourselves every so often. We take the Lord's Supper in church, and the Lord's Supper is a time when we have to examine ourselves, so that we're not taking the ordinance unworthily, because the ones who take it unworthily are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so it forces us to consider our life and say, Lord, is there anything that I need to 
repent of? Is there anything that I need to forsake and, and, and put away from my life? And uh, that, that's how we stay right with one another in the church. That's how we stay right in fellowship with Christ our Lord. And so, but somebody who's outside the body of Christ, how can they be abiding in Christ? It's really simple, I think. Um, no one's abiding in Christ if they're outside the fellowship of the body. So, if a believer within the body sins, then we deal with it exactly according to Matthew 18. We go to that person privately and say something happened here and you and I need to resolve this. And if the matter is settled, then praise the Lord. Two brothers are at peace with each other. There's peace in the body. The body grows stronger. If it takes one or two others, it's still good. If it takes even the whole church, uh, the matter before the person repents and, and gets the matter right, that's good. But if the person refuses to get the matter right, what does that say? They, it says they have chosen to continually abide in sin rather than to abide in Christ. And, and Matthew 18 makes it clear that when they've done that, they're to be removed from the body, and they're to be treated as a heathen and a publican. Why? Because they probably are. They probably said a prayer without really meaning it, without having any faith. And so, uh, uh, then you've just removed uh, something that isn't going to make the body stronger. It's only going to be a disease within the body. And... Uh, uh, it becomes, uh, well, the best thing for the church when that happens. And so, uh, uh, that's, that's our deliverance. We're delivered from sin. We're delivered by realizing that, of course, that, that we can't be saved on our own. And turning and saving faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And He delivers us. And that, but then in uh, verses uh, 7 and 8, we see our, uh, a deceiver. There's a, a deceiver out there. Uh, let's read these verses again. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Now we know that we have an enemy who is very good at deceiving. The Bible says that Satan... Is an angel of light. And it says even the very elect, I think in that case when it talks about him deceiving even the very elect, it's talking about elect Israel uh, during the tribulation period. when Because they're going to make a covenant with the Antichrist, so clearly they've been deceived. Uh, Satan, Satan can make people think that something that is very evil is good and something that is good is evil. Boy, do we see that? I, I can't look at the news... You know, I turn my computer on and some news page pops up on my computer. And what do you see? You see some coach is suspended because he refused to let his women's team play some other women's team that's got a guy on it. And so because he wouldn't let his girls compete against that guy over there, he got suspended. 
indefinitely. He's essentially lost his job. Or, or you know, the, you know, there's a, now, now, you know, you got these boys showering with girls because they identify as, as, as a girl. There's crazy things going on, and people will call that good. And then they'll call us evil. They'll call us big bigots and hate mongers because, because we think that somebody should, you know, shower with the, the gender in which they were born. And uh, uh, John warns his readers not to be deceived by Satan's servants. And <coughs> Satan is a master deceiver. He can lend that power to his servants. His servants uh, can become pretty good at it too. But the one who does righteous, God's word says, the one who does righteous is righteous. Because he has the imputed righteousness of Christ. But he that habitually continues in sin is of the devil. And that's what these verses mean because of the Greek language. He that committed sin, that means he that keeps on committing sin is of the devil. Not, you know, um, somebody who has a moment of weakness and repents and asks God to forgive them. Some men think that their position 